When people are not getting enough sleep and they're being shown pictures of foods and, and pictures of less healthy foods in particular, the brain regions that are associated with reward, motivation, food-seeking behaviors get activated to a greater extent than when we give them plenty of, of time to sleep and get their full night's rest. Welcome to the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast, where healthcare professionals and health-minded consumers are provided with practical and helpful information on current and trending topics from subject matter experts. I'm your host, Mary Purdy, integrative dietitian and nutrition educator. Now, while we know sleep is necessary, few of us are aware of how essential it is for physical and mental health. According to national statistics, approximately 50 to 70 million Americans suffer from sleep or wakefulness disorders. And this has probably increased considering the pandemic-related stressors that have weighed very heavily on us these past couple of years. Now, what you might not know is that one crucial factor that influences sleep is nutrition, with certain dietary habits, foods, or drinks making it easier or harder to get the sleep that we need. Now, on a personal level, I am actually one of those people who experienced some sleep issues. And even with everything that I know and everything that I do, I am always seeking more information about how to get better Zs. So I'm particularly interested in today's topic, which is the connection between diet, sleep, and health. And to talk more on this, I am joined by Associate Professor of Nutritional Medicine at Columbia University's Irving Medical Center, Dr. Marie-Pierre Saint-Ange. In addition to having a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in human nutrition, Dr. St. Ange completed a fellowship at Columbia University and went on to join the New York Obesity and Nutrition Research Center and the Institute of Human Nutrition as a postdoctoral fellow to further her knowledge in the area of energy metabolism and body composition. In her current role at Columbia University's Irving Medical Center in New York City, she has had the opportunity to fuel her passion for research related to food and its influence on disease risk and continues to focus heavily on sleep and its association with obesity and cardiometabolic risk factors. Welcome, Dr. St. Ange. It's so great to meet you. It's really nice to be here, too. I'm excited to speak with you about sleep and diet today. Me, too. And before we launched into our questions, I, I want to learn a little bit more about your background in nutrition research and, and what led you to focus on sleep habits and ultimately that connection between sleep, nutrition, and disease risk. So I started out as a nutrition major in, uh, at McGill University and went on to do my master's and my PhD, as you mentioned, in nutrition also at McGill. My passion was to assess the influence of various foods, which we call functional foods, on cardiovascular disease risk and obesity. And then moved on for a fellowship and, and focused more and more on body composition, energy balance regulation. So what types of foods can you eat that will increase the number of calories that you burn and that will help you eat less to achieve weight loss and reduce your risk of obesity? And then after I completed my, uh, my postdoctoral fellowship, I moved on to my first faculty position. This was at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And while I was there, still interested on studying the role of functional foods on weight management and energy balance, there was a call from the NIH to receive grant applications to assess the influence of sleep on energy balance. And the sleep researchers 
didn't really know how to measure energy balance. So they came to the nutrition department and met with a couple of uh, faculty members there. And at the end of the meeting, I thought this would be a great opportunity to take my expertise in the measurement of energy balance and combine it with their knowledge of sleep. And so that's where, that's where it all started. And I moved back to, to Colombia and really that's where uh, it all took off. Amazing. Yeah. It's, it's so incredible to hear how the beginning of your research started off with functional foods. And then that's went over to how does that affect energy balance? And then how does energy balance affect sleep and how does sleep affect energy balance? So clearly there's a, there's a lot of passion about how foods can influence disease risk and the, the role that sleep plays as well. And, and since you've got so many different areas of research that are all connecting to human health, let's just take a little bit of time to focus on the sleep component. So so let's start off with a, a real basic and simple question, which is what is the ideal number of hours everyone should be sleeping each night? And how does this differ by age? All right. So everybody knows, right, that young children need much more sleep than, than adults. And so obviously infants require 12 to 16 hours of sleep over a 24-hour period. It's not consolidated at night. As children age, this goes down up to like in 6 to 12-year-olds, we'd recommend 9 to 12 hours of sleep. Teenagers need 8 to 10 hours of sleep, right? So teenagers, I'm talking 13 to 18-year-olds, should get at least 8 to 10 hours of sleep per night. But then once you reach adulthood, the recommended number of hours is at least 7 at least seven hours of sleep per day. And it doesn't, that recommendation does not change through adulthood. So sometimes you have that preconceived notion that perhaps you need even less sleep as you get into older age, but that's not the case. Everybody in adulthood is recommended to sleep at least seven hours per night. Okay. I think some people wish they needed less sleep so they could do more with their lives, but it's good to know that seven to nine hours is a pretty standard recommendation for, for most adults. And I have a feeling there is a lot of kids and teenagers and adults who are likely not getting the recommended amount, as you just mentioned. So this is probably eye-opening for a lot of folks. And we hear these terms, um, sleep deprived, uh, sleep deficiency. Can you define what those two are and the impact that they each have on our health, both physically and mentally? Right. So when we talk about sleep deprivation, we're really talking about lacking sleep in duration, right? So not having a sufficient number of hours of sleep at night, that would be sleep deprivation, or sometimes you could say sleep restriction, you're reducing your sleep. But we're talking about sleep deficiency. This is a broader concept that encompasses insufficient sleep, so not enough sleep duration, but also low quality sleep. So that means that you may get short sleep, but or you can also have an adequate number of hours of sleep, but that sleep is of poor quality, either because it occurs at the wrong time of day, either because it's disrupted often in the middle of the night, or it's uh, you have difficulty falling asleep, or you're having waking up too early. So there are many different uh, ways that sleep quality can be disturbed. And that is what we talk about when we're referring to sleep deficiency. It's not necessarily just in duration, but also in quality. Mm, so quality is key and a lack of that has health effects. Uh, 
talk a little bit about the physical impacts and also about the mental impacts, because I know after a poor night's sleep, we are just not quite as sharp as we think we are. Well, so that's exactly it, right? If you talk to people and you ask them about, you know, what impact does uh, insufficient sleep have on your body, they will readily say that they're not as sharp, it takes, might take them a little longer to react to different things, they're not remembering things as clearly, if they're not getting enough sleep, learning is impaired. So we know the cognitive aspects. We also know, you know, we're feeling sleepy. We have a harder time remaining alert and awake during the day, uh, less, dif- more difficulty paying attention, remaining focused. So those are all mental cognitive components of, uh, of sleep, right? That, that we are well aware of, but there are other things that occur within our body that we may not feel. So, for example, there's an increased risk of high blood pressure with insufficient or poor quality sleep. And we don't necessarily feel elevated blood pressure or we don't necessarily feel the higher risk of higher risk factors for cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes that are associated with poor sleep quality and and, uh, short sleep duration. So not only are we kind of grumpy and less alert and less able to respond quickly, but there are really serious health implications, even as serious as something like increased risk for diabetes and heart disease. And I I know a lot of people go to bed at 10 and they wake up at six and they think, okay, great. I've got eight hours. I've met the recommendation, but How do we actually know? I I know there's a lot of sleep tracking devices, and I got to tell you, I have used one of them in the past, and I feel like that thing was way off. So how accurate and effective are these wearable devices? For example, like Apple Watch or Aura Ring, how effective are they in terms of measuring actual time spent in bed and total sleep? So the good news is that there are some good consumer devices that that can track your sleep. Those devices generally do a good job at tracking the amount of sleep that you get or tracking the amount of time that you're awake, but they're not going to give you more detailed information. Like I I don't really rely on, on my watch, for example, to tell me I got enough deep sleep, right? So it's pretty good with the, with duration of sleep, but not so much related to sleep disorders and sleep stages. And also these watch tend to do a better job with good sleepers than poor sleepers. So people that have better consolidated sleep, so they don't get awakened frequently in the middle of the night, for those people, watches are more accurate than for people who wake up more frequently in the middle of the night. So that might not be as useful as you think if you're trying to determine if you're getting good sleep or not so good sleep. So how do we actually know? I mean, how do I wake up in the morning and tell that I've had a really great sleep? Because you should feel good. Right. So if you had good sleep, you should wake up feeling refreshed. You should wake up feeling alert. You should wake up feeling like you can tackle the day and, you know, just get up and go. You know, if you wake up and you're still tired, you're not feeling great, you probably didn't get as good a night's sleep as you should have gotten. And talk a little bit more about the research around some of these health implications. Uh, Aside from just feeling good, which we all enjoy when we wake up, this idea of really putting ourselves at risk for all kinds of chronic diseases. Tell us a little bit more about the research behind that and the implications for how to prevent some of these diseases with better quality sleeps. Mm -hmm. So 
I like to think about approach research systematically and start with the big picture and the big population studies that provide a lot of questions and, and associations. So from those large population studies, we can track the um, associations between various sleep parameters and risk factors for cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity, hypertension, those chronic diseases. So we know that people who report having shorter sleep or having sleep disorders are those that are at higher risk of cardiovascular disease, higher risk of type 2 diabetes and hypertension, obesity. When we track these people over time, those who have poor sleep tend to be the ones who develop more heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and hypertension. So we know that you know, those sleep factors precede the development of, of those disorders. There's also a lot of uh, clinical intervention studies that have been done that restrict sleep in good sleepers and look at various risk factors. And from those studies, and part of the, uh, the evidence that we've provided from our lab show that if you restrict sleep duration in people who have good sleep to begin with, they'll tend to eat more than they would when we give them a sufficient time in bed. Their uh, glycemic control is reduced. Their ability to handle glucose loads is reduced when they're under undergoing short sleep compared to adequate sleep, blood pressure increases. So we have evidence that by restricting sleep or inducing poor sleep in, in individuals who have good sleep to begin with, we can have adverse effects on those risk factors for chronic diseases. Wow. So that lack of sleep really leads to metabolic changes in the body that make us less effective at utilizing glucose or burning calories. I remember I had a patient who, who felt like she was not eating an excessive amount of calories and, and she just could not figure out why she wasn't losing weight. And then we started talking about her sleep patterns and, um, that's where we were able to connect the dots. It wasn't just about the calories. It was about how her body was utilizing those calories as a result of her sleep deficit. So really interesting. And let's talk about this area of research that you are so well-versed in, which is the role of nutrition in supporting a restful slumber. I don't think people think of food as helping us to sleep, but tell us about the connection between sleep and what we eat. So could you believe this is actually something that I hadn't even started thinking about until a committee from the Dietary Guidelines Advisory contacted me to ask about diet and sleep when they were developing guidelines for Americans. And they were asking me about sleep and, uh, and diet. And I had done quite a bit of research looking at the influence of sleep on food intake, but they were interested in knowing about how diet, could, could we make recommendations about diet to improve people's sleep? And I thought, why, why didn't I think of that? So I started digging into some of the research that we had done and, um, and started analyzing our data in different ways to really find out that, yes, there was actually an association between what you eat during the day and your sleep at night. And again, like I mentioned, I like to start off with population studies and we went back to larger scale population studies to look at dietary patterns and see if dietary patterns in individuals was related to their risk of sleep disorders. And one of them was from the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, where we looked at the population's 
diet and their adherence to a Mediterranean diet and their risk of reporting insomnia symptoms and short sleep. And we found cross-sectional associations. So just looking at baseline at one point in time, there were associations between diet and um, a better diet with reduced risk of insomnia symptoms. And we also looked at it longitudinally. So what is your diet at this at baseline and does it predict sleep at a later time? So to see if there is um, a time factor in there. And we also did find that there was an association between adherence to a Mediterranean diet and better sleep at a follow-up period. In a shorter study in women that we conducted here at Columbia, we also showed similar findings that adherence to a Mediterranean diet was associated with better sleep quality, better sleep efficiency, uh, fewer sleep disturbances when we evaluated sleep one year later. Interesting. So the Mediterranean diet sounds like it has some beneficial qualities for sleep, although not everyone can adhere to the Mediterranean diet because it may not be with everyone's culture or within everyone's culture to adhere to all of those specific food groups. Yeah, but also we we looked at various food groups within the Mediterranean diet, right? So fruits and vegetables were uh, came out as being significantly uh, associated with better sleep quality, a higher intake of legumes, so your, your beans, right? So red beans, chickpeas, kidney beans, black beans, those types of, uh, of uh, protein sources were associated with better sleep quality. And there was also a, a trend for dark breads. So whole grain breads being associated with better sleep quality. Okay. So fruits and vegetables, whole grain breads, and, and I mean, I guess whole grains in general and legumes all help with sleep patterns. So if someone has a, a patient out there, or someone is struggling with sleep issues, what are some foods or some food combinations that you might recommend to them? Yeah, so I would be recommending a diet that's higher in fiber and lower in saturated fat. So that's rich in plant-based proteins with beans and seeds and tofu and fish, and also uh, plenty of fruits and vegetables. Excellent. And those are all going to have beneficial effects on those cardiometabolic factors that we're talking about as well. And digging more into your research a bit about the effects of nutritional patterns on sleep, tell us a little bit more about some of the results that you learned. Yeah. So when we, when I started thinking about how diet could influence sleep at night, we looked at some of the research that we had done where we had given our study participants a controlled diet for a few days and then let themselves select their food intake for one day. And we had very, very precise measures of their sleep at night. So my first idea was, what is there a difference in sleep between the night when we're giving them a diet and the night when they're self-selecting their diet? Because we know that the diet that we provided for our research had a healthier profile than the diet that they self-selected when we let them eat whatever they wanted. And we actually did find that on the night that they self-selected their diet, they took twice as long to fall asleep than when we gave them our research food, right? Healthy diet. So the next question then was, okay, there are differences in sleep between those two days. What is it about the diet that they chose that's related to their sleep at night? And there were three specific nutrients that we found that were related to their sleep at night sugar, saturated fat, and fiber. And participants who consumed 
more fiber during the day, had more deep sleep and less light sleep at night. When they consumed less saturated fat, they also had uh, more deep sleep. And when they, um, they had more sugar during the day, they had more arousals at night. So they went they were they had these micro awakenings in the middle of the night that were uh, more frequent when they had more sugar during the day. So these are the three three nutrients that kind of stood out for us in terms of uh, that that relation between diet and sleep. That is such key information because not only do we know that this is going to be beneficial for sleep, but those are recommendations that we're making our, for our optimal health in any case. So we really are feeding two birds with one scone here. One thing that I have found to be effective with patients is making sure that their breakfast is actually protein rich. And that somehow helps to create a positive glycemic response that keeps them more balanced throughout the day, that sets them up for a better circadian rhythm, that helps with sleeping at night. What, what do you know about that? Yeah, so it's possible as well that uh, the timing of what you eat can influence your sleep at night. But there's also um, different properties of foods. You were mentioning specifically protein-rich, right? So proteins contain amino acids. And one of those amino acids, tryptophan, is the basis for the production of melatonin, which is your main hormone that, um, that stimulates or that, that uh, triggers uh, sleep onset. So consuming more tryptophan early in the day may be providing the building blocks for tryptophan, uh, for a melatonin later in the day and helping you get that amount of melatonin to stimulate sleep onset and better sleep. Excellent. And I know a lot of folks take melatonin as a supplement. I, I actually have taken that myself. It's been very helpful, but I understand there are also food sources of melatonin. I don't know if it's just the tryptophan or if there are other foods out there that may also be a good source of melatonin to help people fall asleep. Well, absolutely. Melatonin is found in many, many different foods. If you think about it, animals also produce melatonin, right? So there have, back, there have actually been studies where they milk cows in the middle of the night where their melatonin is higher and give uh, melatonin-enriched milk and assess whether that could improve um, sleep in people drinking that type of milk. So uh, we're, I don't think we're there yet, but melatonin is also found in various fruits and vegetables. It's an antioxidant. And so it's a, it's a protectant for various plant foods. So it's also uh, found in, in those in, uh, in various fruits and vegetables. And there have been studies that have shown that consuming various fruits and vegetables can actually increase melatonin levels in the blood in humans. Fascinating. You just blew my mind with milking cows in the middle of the night. Uh, not that we suggest waking cows up in the middle of the night to milk them unnecessarily, but that is a very interesting fact there. And you're talking about fruits and vegetables, all the nutrients in there. Uh, are there specific vitamins or mineral deficiencies that can have an impact on sleep quality? Right. So there have been some studies that show that uh, magnesium deficiencies or iron deficiencies, some vitamin D deficiencies can be related to poor sleep quality and sleep disorders. So in those, in that sense, perhaps, you know, making sure that you have a well-balanced diet that provides all the nutrients that are essential for, for health to prevent potential poor sleep as a result of, 
uh, nutrient deficiencies. So magnesium, vitamin D, iron. I know I've recommended to patients to take um, some magnesium before bed, but obviously food sources of that would include beans and nuts and seeds and dark leafy greens. And you're talking about getting all of those foods in during the day. Is that right? Correct. Excellent. And, and I would imagine on the topic of foods, since people eat in various different ways, there are also food cravings that come up for many of us, which can be the result of a variety of factors from emotions to deficiencies to all kinds of different things. But talk a little bit about how sleep deprivation or sleep uh, deficiency can intensify or provoke those kinds of cravings. Yeah. So we've actually uh, looked at brain activity in response to various types of foods after a period of sleep restriction and shown that when people are not getting enough sleep and they're being shown pictures of foods and and pictures of less healthy foods in particular, the brain regions that are associated with reward, motivation, food-seeking behaviors get activated to a greater extent than when we give them plenty of, of time to sleep and get their full night's rest. And so that could be one way where Um, getting insufficient sleep then can set you up for making poor choices, right? So you already know that your decision-making is impaired because you're not sleeping well enough. And then now you also have, you know, reward networks in the brain that are upregulated due to insufficient sleep, fatigue that sets in in terms of mental power to make those helpful food decisions. And when you're being given a choice between, you know, a salad for lunch or something else, that's not, not, that's not so healthy. Perhaps then you'll fall more for the unhealthy food choice rather than the healthier option. I think that can be so validating for people to hear because many people see their food choices as a lack of willpower and think, oh, I made this decision because I have no willpower. When ultimately it's it's coming from this lack of something in the brain, some kind of energy deficiency or, or sleep deficiency that's causing us or maybe contributing to our different choices. It's really, really helpful for people to hear that. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, when you're when you're faced between you know, at a restaurant and in front of the menu and you're debating what what to have for for lunch or dinner, um, just Making, taking a step back, checking in, am I wanting this dish because I really am really hungry because I really want it? Or is it because I didn't have enough sleep last night? And, and then just knowing this can maybe help you or tip you over to make the healthier decision. Yes. Just taking a step back, being mindful about what's going on. And actually you're making me think of another question here, which is, Uh, Some people choose to go to bed at 10 and they wake up at six and some people choose to go to bed at 12 and they wake up at eight. What is the difference between the timeframe in which you decide to get those seven to nine hours? So it's better to get the seven to nine hours at night, earlier in the night rather than later in the night. So I would say, you know, the the 10 to midnight is a better uh, go to bed window than the midnight to 2 a.m. because then you're starting to extend into the early morning hours where, you know, bright light starts to be up and out. And you would want to get as much daylight as possible and bright light in the morning to get better sleep. Um, so, so maximizing that time where you're in bed when it's dark outside, rather than being in bed when there's more daylight available. 
And I would imagine that would probably switch from season to season. Yes, I I know in the Pacific Northwest, it stays pretty light until about 10 o'clock here um, in the summertime. So it's it's hard to go to bed at that time in July. And there's some conflicting information about eating too close to bedtime. So what are your thoughts about how long before bed one should stop eating? And of course, knowing that everyone's a little bit different, but what what are some general thoughts about this? Right. So generally speaking, we like to make recommendations to stop eating at about at least three hours before going to bed, just so that you have enough time to process the food for some people, you know, having a large meal very close to bedtime can cause gastric reflux, can be uncomfortable. So usually just having a, a last meal a few hours before going to bed would be, be preferable than eating right up close to, to bedtime. Great. And and these are a lot of nutritional ideas about food and sleep habits. What about lifestyle factors? I know there's lots of information about sleep hygiene, getting off your screens, um, being exposed to blue lights. So tell us a little bit about some ideas there. Right. So we hear about that quite a bit, right? So trying to dim the lights, making sure that because bright light interferes with melatonin secretion, you want your melatonin to, to, to be released uh, appropriately before bedtime. So you would like you would need to be um, as much as possible in, in dimmer light before bedtime, not shining bright light in, in, in your eyes before going to bed. Um, but I think there's something else that people don't really um, think about too much either is uh, regularity of sleep patterns. So trying to make sure to go to bed and wake up at the same time, roughly every night, because there have been uh, studies reporting associations between um, having highly variable sleep schedule and a higher risk of metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease. And continuing on this lifestyle factor front, what is an appropriate kind of uh, sleep ritual that you would recommend an adult have before they go to sleep to ensure a better evening? Yeah, that's interesting that you ask about that specifically related to adults, because we do this all the time with our children, right? We uh, read them a bedtime story, we cuddle, maybe have a warm bath, followed by a story, cuddling, go to bed. So we calm them down, right? We don't start giving our our children exciting toys right before going to bed. So as adults, we should not be using exciting toys before going to bed. We should be doing the same thing calming ourselves down, doing more calming activities, more calming rituals. Maybe that involves listening to more quiet music, doing some meditation or yoga or anything that could be more quiet and and that helps to calm the mind. Not opening up your work emails to then get that email that's going to be just up there and nagging you all night long, preventing you from falling asleep. So Trying to get into a calming ritual before going to bed would be really good for sleep. Wonderful. Calming rituals, baths, and more cuddling, even if that's just with your pillow. That's true. So what would you recommend for all those who are thinking, gosh, my sleep is not as optimal as I'd like it to be? Or for a practitioner who's working with somebody who's made that kind of complaint, where can people start to change their habits easily in order to improve their sleep? Easily. Well, I'm, you know, lifestyle, lifestyle changes seem to never be so, so easy, but I would say to, we're, we're talking about nutrition here, you know, we like to talk about diet and improving diet. I think so looking back at what you're eating during the day, first, if you want to make one first step is what are you eating before bed? 
Are you eating too close to bedtime? Are you having high sugary foods, very high fat foods uh, in, in the evening? Uh, if so, then trying to get more fiber, lighter foods, eating, stopping eating a few hours. So stop eating before not eating after dinner could be one of, you know, one first thing to start with. And then making sure you have good breakfast in the morning, setting yourself up for having more calories earlier on during the day rather than later during the later at night. And then perhaps, you know, that that will help you get better sleep, which will help you make better dietary decisions, right? So I think it's a matter of interrupting a vicious cycle of having poor, bad sleep, and then making unhealthy diet and exercise uh, choices during the day that then set you up for more bad sleep, right? So interrupting that cycle, getting better sleep to help get help you get a better diet that then helps you get better sleep and keep that cycle going. So better breakfast, more fruits and vegetables, less sugar, refined fats and oils, and making sure you're not getting too much food too close to bedtime. These are great strategies, but I think anyone can begin to think about incorporating. Well, thank you so much, Dr. St. Ange. This has been incredibly informative. And I imagine there's a lot of listeners out there who are very much looking forward to their sleep this evening and beyond. So thank you for being here and giving us such wonderful ideas. Thank you for having me. It was great chatting with you. Given the undeniable connection between nutrition and sleep quality, it's important that we set good intentions daily toward eating nutrient-dense foods, limiting added sugars, and staying hydrated. Orgain's clean protein shakes contain 20 grams of grass-fed milk protein and just 130 calories and 3 grams of sugar per serving. The convenience of a high-quality, ready-to-drink protein shake helps you to get the power of good, clean nutrition during the day, which may set you up for a restful night. Visit Orgain.com to learn more. We look forward to having you join us for future episodes of the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast, sponsored by Orgain, where we'll interview more subject matter experts on a variety of health and nutrition-focused topics. To stay up to date on the latest episodes of this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks so much for tuning in and see you next time.